This afternoon, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Matthew and chapter 25. I'm going to draw a couple of things out of this, this first parable that's given here concerning the virgins. I know that this is a quite uh, familiar section of scripture for us, but I want to just draw a few things out of it because of just some things that I, the Lord just really made so real to me this week. And I, it was, I was kind of, uh, in a sense, I don't know if awestruck is the right word, but I certainly was awed by what I felt and what I saw and, and, and uh, the impact that it made in my spirit. And I felt like because of where we are, especially even in the season that we're in, felt like it was uh, as a, as a time for us to take a look at this and um, for us to to allow the Lord perhaps to impact us as well. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 25, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps with them to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their their vessels with their lamps. And when the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed the lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, As surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, I know there could be various applications made from this particular parable. Some have made applications concerning a couple different kinds of Christians, but really when you look at it, the primary application for this parable relates back to the 24th chapter of Matthew, and that's why I want to relate it because because we see that in both the 13th verse and we see it also in the first verse. The first, the first key word that we have here is the word then. The first word in chapter 25 is the word then. And what it is, it refers to the timing of when this particular setting is, to, uh, is applicable. And it goes back to the 24th chapter. Now in the 24th chapter, the 24th and 25th chapter is really Jesus' response to three questions that his disciples ask him. When they were there on the Mount of Olives, they asked him three questions. When shall this be? When shall the sign of be your coming? And when's going to be the end of the age? And so Jesus is in the whole 24th chapter, he's, re, he's, re, he's answering those questions of the disciples. And as he brings these answers down of what he's telling the disciples, we're going to look at it in, in chapter 24. And uh, we're going to, uh, well, let's just look at it first of all in the, in the uh, uh, first couple of verses of chapter 24, because it's important for us to realize when the setting is here. Uh, and he says in the, um, uh, in the, um, Verse 3, I'll pick it up there. It says, When he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? He'd been talking about the, the building of the temple being destroyed. He says, And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the first thing Jesus said was, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, some of you perhaps have heard me mention here that there are two words used in the Greek for the word end in this particular chapter. The first word, uh, the first word as an example, here in verse 3, uh, that he uses is the, is the word suntelia, which simply means that it's, it's not really the end, but it's the beginning of the end. We would say, as an example, it will be, we would say like Friday night is the end of the week. 
But Friday night is not really the end of the week. The end of the week is not actually until Saturday midnight. But Friday night is the end of the work week. And so when they, the word that is used here was like the word we would use for Friday, Friday evening is the end of the week. However, he says, as, as we look at this down in verse 6 then, he says when Jesus used a different word and he says, well, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. This is the word telos. This means the actual end. And so the whole framework of what, what Jesus is talking about here in this 24th chapter and in the 25th chapter is in what I call the weekend of the age. It's from Friday night when the, when the, weekday clo- when the week, work week closes to Saturday night midnight when, uh, well, when it's the time when it's the actual end of the age when a new age is being birthed and brought forth. And so all of what Jesus is saying here has to do with that particular time, or at least a lot of what he says here in this chapter, uh, because some of it we know refer also to 70 AD, but a lot of what happens is happens between what I would call the weekend of the age. And so when he's going on through that and he's talking about that, he, he, we're going to drop down out of verse 42, and in verse 42, as he's beginning to wind up this particular section of the scripture, he says, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that in the master, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 44, therefore you, shall, uh, therefore, you sh- also, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. <coughs> Excuse me, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So the, the, the emphasis that he's bringing here is a, is a watchfulness that's absolutely essential because we do not know when the Son of Man is coming, when he is going to make his appearing, when he is going to be coming. And then he says, <clears throat> he begins to talk about a faithful and evil servant, and it would drop in verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, shall find so doing. Doing what? Watching, as in verse 42. Blessed is the one who shall be watching, as in verse 42. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over his goods. We'll drop down a little farther to verse 51 and says, uh, um, well, pick it up in verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware of and will cut, him, uh, will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And at that time there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the reason there is weeping and a gnashing of teeth is because, the, the, because he was not watchful. This particular servant was not watchful and because he was not watchful he began to be lazy and he began to treat his fellow servants wrongly and incorrectly. And so he says when that time comes and when this happens, when the master comes to take an account of what's taking place here, he says there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think this particular phrase is used eight times in the New Testament. Jesus used it, and it always speaks to a particular time frame. It speaks of this time frame of the end of the age, or in other words, the weekend of the age is when the time frame is where Jesus used that. So we can sometimes use a, a, a reference or something, or a phrase that Jesus uses uh, time and again, and you'll find that there's, a, that there's a particular reference point for that. And so it's in this setting, it's in this setting then, at the time of the end of the age, the time when there's going to be upheaval and a time when some are going to be watching and some are not going to be watching, it's in this time frame that Jesus says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. I'm going to title this message, Go Out to Meet Him. I did a message on this about 15 years ago. 
But as I was quickened this week and I began to, I began to hear the, have the Spirit of the Lord just impact me in this, and not in the, in the it's going in a completely different direction than what it did back 15 years ago. But if there's, a, there, there's an impacting that came here as a result of some reading that I was doing this week in the, in the book of Acts, and that's what I want to get to. And so when we, when we see this, it says they had gone out to meet the bridegroom. Now, for us in this culture, we know very little about this, but I, I learned a little bit what it means to be friends with the bridegroom some years ago when I was in Africa. I've, I've related this, but some of you have, haven't heard this, this particular account. I was in Africa, and I was privileged in the, in the country of Kenya. I was, I was there for ministry, and I was privileged to take in a, an African wedding. And in that African wedding, it was a rural wedding, and in that African wedding, I happened to be uh, the friend, uh, with the ones who were the friends of the bridegroom. And in that particular time, when the, when the, bride went to, uh, when the bridegroom went to, get his, to claim his bride, of course, certain dowries had to be paid and all the rest of that, but there was an entourage that went actually with the bridegroom, but then there were also those who were with the bride who were waiting. They were waiting there in preparation, not knowing exactly when he was going to come, but they were there with the bride and waiting for when the bridegroom was going to come. And when that call went out, behold, the bridegroom comes, there was a bunch of scrambling that took place because the bride was not going to be presented, providing that the full dowry had been paid. In that particular instance, it hadn't. And so the, 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 the parents of the, bri- of, the, of the bride, rather, they, re- they, they required some more dowry. And so the friends of the bridegroom that were along with the bridegroom, they had to come up with the rest of the dowry. Now, fortunately for that, the dowry that they required was just some more worship and singing and praise because they were all Christians. But they could have asked for a couple of cows or a few goats or something else. And the friends of the bridegroom, that's the reason they went with him, is because they were there so they could make up the dowry if it was required. So we don't know a whole lot about that in this, in this culture, but that's just kind of commonplace over there. And so here, there were these ten virgins. They were waiting for the bridegroom. They had gone out to meet him. They had gone out there to, to wait for him to come. But in the time of waiting, they all slumbered and slept. They all slumbered and slept. Now, have you ever noticed how easy it is to slumber and fall asleep when you're waiting for something? Now, we've been, the church has been waiting for the bridegroom for a long time, 2,000 years. A lot of people have slumbered and slept in that 2,000-year period. But even for us here, right here where we are, there can be promises and, and that the Lord has given us that we have looked to, that we have embraced, that we have watched for, we have expected. That if we're not careful, we can be slumbering and sleeping because, oh my goodness, uh, from time when the, from the, from times of, from old times, the promise of the Father has been here, but it just hasn't happened. Just hasn't happened. Just hasn't happened. And we can get, we can get very much, uh, very much complacent as we're waiting for that fulfillment of what He has promised. Now, when we look at this, <clears throat> the word "coming" here, we look waiting for His coming is the is the Greek word parousia which is used 24 times in the New Testament. It's a technical expression which has to do with the arrival of a dignitary or a person of authority. This is the parousia of Jesus Christ that is often is used as his second coming where he is actually revealed and his presence is made manifest in a, in a, in a dimension of glory that has not before been expected or been, been experienced rather. And so it is also used though of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9 and of people. 
For instance, Paul said this when he, uh, when he spoke to the Corinthians. He said, nevertheless, God, this is 2 Corinthians 7 and 6, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the parousia, or the coming of Titus. It just simply means that Titus came into their midst. He came into their presence. His presence was there among them, and so they were comforted by that. It is also used by Paul himself when he says, among other places in Philippians 2 and 12, Wherefore, my brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence parousia only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so he's saying, listen, my, if my presence was here with you, I know how you'd respond. I know that you'd be giving very much diligence to work out your salvation, but I also know because of the truth and the reports that have come back to me, I know that you're doing that even when my presence is not with you. So when it talks about the coming of the Lord, it can have two applications. It can have the application of the actual second coming when he comes with glory, but it can also just simply mean the presence of the Lord comes into your midst. And so we can be in a place where we can be very lackadaisical, and we can kind of be slumbering and sleeping and not realizing that the presence of the Lord is about to come into the midst of the church. He's about to show up. And so here they were. They were all asleep. They were all asleep. They were somewhere, you know, they were, they were all asleep. But at midnight, at midnight, it says, in, in verse 6, it said, At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And then he says, Go out to meet him. That's what I want to talk about this afternoon. What it means to go out to meet him. What it means to go out to meet the bridegroom. What does it mean to, to, to go out to meet him with an anticipation of the perusia coming, the presence of the Lord coming and overwhelming us and filling us and, and where we just are, are there where we know he's there and the glory of, 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 of his presence is there and it is awesome. Now I realize that any presence of the Lord that we can have and I know we've all been in meetings when the presence of the Lord just came in in awesome just in an awesome way I, I, I know I, I, I know of meetings where we've been where everybody in that place is on their knees because of the presence of the Lord some are on their faces because of the presence of the Lord and that's a glorious time I remember one time years ago it was time, time we were having a, a, a visitation where we were and, in the community and and uh, in one particular service the glory of God came into that place and everybody went went around their face and on their knees and everything else and the young man who was leading the worship at that time we had the we had our the, the, the elders sitting behind here and he literally crawled away from behind the pulpit crawled on his hands and knees over me and says this is too much for you get in there you like this is out of my hands this would be all over my head and so I, I went in to take or take uh, to take my place there and that meeting. But it's just awesome times. But yet, in times like that, that is just that is peanuts compared to what's going to what's really going to take place when the second coming comes and the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. But you know what? You see that, that there's a principle in the Scripture. There's a principle that every true prophetic hope must have a present reality at its premise. And because if, we want to, if we're going to have a true prophetic hope of the great glory of God and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes, there needs to be a present reality at his premise as well as his basis as well. And we need to be experiencing his presence right now in a way that's tangible, a way that's expected, in a way that's, that, that is such that, that, that we know that there's something greater that's coming. There's something greater coming. And so at midnight, at midnight, and I'm not going to take the time to break down for you all the things that happen at midnight in the Scripture. But there, there are eight very significant things that happen at midnight in the Scripture. 
It brings a new beginning. But he says at midnight, he says there was a, there was a, uh, there was a cry made, go out to meet the bridegroom. Go out to meet the bridegroom. Now I want to look at this word meet because uh, it is important for us because of the way that some people put a spin on it, which is not supposed to be there. But the word meet that's used here, it's only used a couple other places in the, in the scripture. It, it's, it just simply means to be an official welcome in verse 1, where it says go out to meet the bridegroom. It, it means to be an official welcome. When you, you welcome somebody officially, you recognize them, you, you honor them, and you welcome their presence. In verse 6, when it says go out to meet the bridegroom, it's a little bit different word, kind of coming from the same root, but it has a little bit different understanding with it, and it's only used three times in Scripture. It's used here, and it's also used in verse 28 and 15, where Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and he went out there, and they came out to meet him. It's also used in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17, where it says we're to meet the Lord in the air. Now, here's where the spin has been put on by the modern church that is wrong, because what that word actually means when you look at it in the Greek, what that word means is, is like when Paul was going up there to Jerusalem and the elders came out to meet him, when they came out to meet him, they did not then, uh, they did not, uh, then go... Um, back to where he came from, but what they did is they went with him to where he was going. That's what it means. You, you, you see someone coming who's a dignitary, someone who's of great importance, and you go out to meet them, and in the meeting, you welcome him to where he's going. You don't say, okay, I want to go back with you where you came from. And that's where people who teach the rapture get off, off track because they think that when the Lord comes, and we're called to meet him, and they're going to, we're going to be always going to go, we're going to go back where he came from. No, that's what the scripture says. Is what about when it meets him in the air? Well, well, that's a different message. We're not going to talk about that today, but I can tell you this. It doesn't meet to fly away somewhere from pie in the sky. Somebody say amen. And so it says that's where the it's only used in these three places, but it's it's a meeting of a dignitary, and then you re, then you, you you accompany him to where he's going on his mission, where he's going on his mission, and when the Lord of Glory returns, he's coming to bring glory into the earth. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. And so he as he says, go out to meet him. Go out to meet him now. Well, what does it mean to go out to meet? It does not necessarily mean that we have to go to some geographical place that's other than where we are presently. It doesn't mean that at all. But we need to go out from our comfort zones. We need to go out from our comfort zones. We need to allow the Spirit of God to stretch us beyond our comforts. Amen. Remember this, that yesterday's obedience becomes today's comfort zone. Yesterday's obedience becomes today's comfort zone. We need to go beyond that. We think sometimes because I obeyed God yesterday and because I obeyed God last week, therefore I can now rest in my laurels and I can rest in that comfort zone. No, we need to be continually pressing the envelope. We need to be continually expecting Him to give us a further word because I believe that God is always speaking to His people. In fact, I believe He wants to speak to us more than we want to hear from Him. The reason we often do not want to take the time to hear from Him is because we're afraid what He might tell us. Come on now. So one of the things that we need to do if we're going to go out to meet him, we need to go out from where we've been. We need to go out from our traditions for us. We need to go out from our staidness. We need to go out from our passivity. We need to go out from our lethargy. We need to go out from our comfort zones. We need to go out to meet him. Amen. Out from the normal routines. Out from the religious facades. Out from wherever we've been, where we've been comfortable. Let's go out to meet him. Yes. Amen. 
We've got to come out of our sleep. We've got to come out of our slumber. We come out of, come out of the places where, where, where it's just kind of business as usual and where all of our routines and our, and our priorities have been so disarranged that we, it doesn't matter what comes up. We just kind of do what comes naturally day by day. No, no, no. We've got to go out from that. We've got to go out to meet him. You missed a good place to shout, but that's all right. <laughs> At midnight, the time when most people think it's time to sleep and rest on the laurels. The time of the darkness. It's dark at midnight. There's not a whole lot of light going on, and you wonder, is the new day truly going to come? But it's there in that place when it looks like the, the most profitable place for us to be is just to be at a rest and taking our rest because after all, we've paid our dues. We've been here for, we've been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it's been. And you know, we're just kind of tired. Lord, won't you just come and take us home? But it's time, and that, even in that situation, it's time for us when we hear that the bridegroom is coming, it's time for us to go out to meet him. And I can tell you this, in the spirit, I hear a cry. In the spirit, I begin to hear a sound coming out of the, down the corridor of time. I begin to hear it come out of the spiritual dimension and it's saying the bridegroom is coming the bridegroom is coming the bridegroom is coming therefore what we need to do are we going to go out to meet him or are we going to stay in our complacency and there be some wailing and gnashing of teeth because it could have been it could have been it could have been I think one of the things that's puts the fear of God in me more than anything else. It's for me to think in terms of it could have been. It could have been. Let's look at a few examples of those who went out to meet the Lord. You don't need to necessarily turn to this. You can if you wish. Chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, rather. The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I want you to note that. If we look at that, if we cross-reference that with Acts chapter 7, we'd find it when, when Abram was a young man in Ur of the Chaldees. He was there with his family who were idolaters, worshiping primarily the moon god named Sin. They had various other gods over there in Ur of the Chaldees, which, by the way, is in the area of Iraq today. And as they were over there, <clears throat> suddenly as a young man, the God of glory appeared to him right out of the middle of nowhere because he found something apparently in the heart of Abraham. He appeared to him and he said to him, you need to get out of this land. You need to get away from your father's house. And you need to go to a country that I'm going to show you. Now it was some time before Abram actually left because, you see, he was a young man at the time of this visitation according to Acts chapter 7. And it wasn't until he, the whole family got convinced where Abram, his, his father, Tira, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. And they went out there and they, when they left, they were 70, he was 75 years old well, when he left uh, there. And he took an entourage with him of people that went, went there. And they got over into the land, of, uh, in the land of, that he, God was going to give them there in Canaan. But the thing about it is, is he had, to, he had to leave everything that was familiar to him. He had to leave his security, whatever that might have been. 
He had to leave the, his extended family. He, he actually was called to even leave his natural family, but his natural family went along with him until God separated them from him through the processes of his dealings. He separated them. But everything that had been, had been uh, familiar to Abram, he, he was asked to leave behind. He left it behind. He had to go out to meet the Lord. He would have never become the father of the faithful. He would never have birthed Isaac when he stayed, had he stayed in Ur, the Chaldees. He had to go out, go out, go out to meet him. He had to go out and take a journey in faith to where God was taking him. We can look at many others. We can look at Enoch. You know the story of Enoch. It's just a couple of verses, but there's a profound teaching in there. Enoch, it says in verse, verse 23 and 4 of, of Genesis 5, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now if you read that carefully over there, you'll find that Enoch had a family. He had a fairly large family. They were, they, they were, they were I mean, people had large families, so they, they lived a long time. But in spite of his family, in spite of the responsibilities of providing for the family, in spite of the other involvements that he had, according to other sections of the scripture, in spite of all those involvements and all the cares that came upon him, yet he found time to so go out to meet the Lord that he walked farther and farther and deeper and deeper into the presence of the Lord until one day it was just simply closer to go on home with God than it was to come back to his own house. God took him. That word took is an interesting Hebrew word. It has the meaning of taking in acceptance, like God would accept an offering. It would mean taking one in, taking in marriage. It means taking in as part of a covenant. It means coming into where God was so pleased with him because he was willing to, 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 to rightly arrange his priorities with his natural responsibilities, with his family responsibilities, with his employment responsibilities. He was able to rearrange those in such a way that he could go out to meet the Lord. How many times do we, in our workplace, in, our, in, in the areas that we have, we make excuses because, oh, I don't have time to get before the Lord. I don't have time to seek His face. I don't have time for prayer. I don't have time for the reading of the Word. Everything else is crowding in. I would say to that, rearrange your priorities. Rearrange your priorities. Reset your day. Get it, get it properly aligned. Get it properly established so you, there's time so you can go out to meet Him. You're never going to meet him in your complacency. You're not going to meet him in your daily routines unless you make an effort to go out to meet him. You've got to go beyond where you are because in that place where you are, you're going to slumber and you're going to sleep and so am I. We've got to go out. Everybody say out. Out. We've got to go out to meet him. We've got to go out to meet him. Out from our comforts. Out from where we're complacent. Out from our religious traditions at times. Out from those places where we just simply can, we know what's going to happen next. We've got to go out from there if we're going to meet him. I hear him coming. I hear something off in the distance is beginning to rumble across the hills. The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. We could talk about Noah. Genesis 7 and 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen you, you are righteous before me in this generation. I want you to understand that there was a, that the society in Noah's day was corrupt, and, uh, and it was, the earth was filled with violence. In fact, the scripture says that every imagination of man's heart continually was, was violent and evil and depraved. I can't imagine what that would be like. 
I get disgusted with the, the, with the occasional depraved thought that comes floating in that wants to take reference. I go, where'd that come from? But he said every thought and imagination of their hearts was only evil continually. It says there, and the, there was violence filling the land. It was corrupt everywhere. But in the midst of it all, Noah had gone out. He had gone out. And I'll tell you what. It was at least as violent, as corrupt as the society is today. Probably more. Because Jesus likened and said, that's the way it's going to be at the time of the return. He likened, he likened Noah's day in Sodom and Gomorrah. Hallelujah. One was that Sodom and Gomorrah was absolute depravity as far as morality is concerned. And the other one in Noah's day was, was violence that was filling the land. Isn't it interesting that the steady diet pumped out through the entertainment world today is pumping out the same thing, violence and depravity and morality, sexual perversion and, and, and depravity and violence and constant stuff like that that's taking place. I don't know who said it, but somebody said they called Hollywood the gates of hell. Now, I know there's some good folks down there, but the point of the principle is the very things that were prevalent in Noah's day and the things that were, were prevalent in Sodom and Gomorrah are being pumped out in multi-billion dollar industries today. You've got to go out to meet him. You've got to go out to meet him. Sometimes you've got to hit that off switch on your remote control and go get your Bible. Go in your prayer closet. Go out to meet him. Go out to meet him. I don't think we're going to meet the Lord a whole lot sitting in front of the television. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not preaching against television. I'm just trying to give a principle and enlightenment here. Another example, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of the sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Moses had it made. He had all the riches and all the pomp of the greatest then known empire in the world at his disposal. I mean, he was there raised in the, in the best schools in Egypt. He was there in the palace. I mean, he had everything going for him. He could have everything was at his beck and call. He was next to the prince of Egypt. But one day it dawned on him. Wait a minute. I'm not an Egyptian. My people are out there in slavery. My people are out there making bricks, and as he, as he, perhaps as one of his, his his regular days of just walking around, and see how the how the bricks were coming for the building of the cities that the pharaohs built back in those days. And one day, Donna, what am I doing? And he saw some uh, saw some inequities taking place there, and and he ended up killing a man and. because he took matters in his own hand. But he he decided that listen, the pleasures of Egypt. The pomp of the palace and all the rest of that. It's not worthy to be compared because suddenly something began to dawn on him. Because remember, he had been raised in his parents' home for a couple of years. 
And while he was there in his parents' home, uh, their parents were filled with faith, as the scripture says in Hebrews 11. And I'm sure that just as was their, was their, uh, was their habit back in the they, they would recite the, the, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would recite those, and something began to be tweaked in his memory, and he remembered, wait a minute. Perhaps he had sort of certain occasions to meet with his family. I don't know. But something stirred within him, and suddenly he said, listen, there's something else out there that's worth more than all that Egypt can provide for me. And he went out. For 40 years, it looked like he made a mistake. Sitting on the backside of a desert, taking care of a flock of sheep that weren't even his own, when he could have been in the palace with the fineries of Egypt. But he had made a decision he'd gone out to meet him because he saw something beyond the present. He had gone out to meet him. We could talk about a lot of other ones in the scripture that made a decision to go out to meet the bridegroom, so to speak. But let's take a look at this. I want to, I want again to, to, to look at what happened now as we go into, the, into Mark chapter 1 because there's a new dispensation that was ushered in. <clears throat> a new dispensation, Mark chapter 1, that was ushered in here. And I want to, I'm, I'm not wanting to lay some background because of where, of where I'm going as to what, what the Lord used to really get my attention this week. And we find in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we'll pick it up in verse 1, and we'll read the first five verses, the, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now I want you to listen carefully to verse 5, because we're going we're gonna to draw from this a little later on. And then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to, out to him and were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now he, had, he made quite an impact here. He made quite an impact. I mean, he was, a, he was a forerunner. He was a lone voice out there in the wilderness. And here's a people who for 1,500 years, the only way they had any relationship with God was through the rituals of the law. The rituals of the law, sacrifices and offerings and all the, all the pomp and, and, and paraphernalia that went with coming into the priest and bringing their offerings and, and bringing their well, whatever else and paying their, 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 their shekels for the, 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 the redemption of the firstborn and all the rest that took place. And then suddenly, out of nowhere it seemed, here's a voice crying out there along the Jordan River, repent, repair the way of the Lord. And at first it was a, it, it was kind of like a, a, what's the word I'm looking? It was kind of like a phenomenon out there where it, it, people went out there with curiosity. I'm sure. Well, what is going on out here? But as they got out there, they came under conviction. And under conviction, it says there that, that that out there they came out from Judea, they came out from Jerusalem, and as they went out there, they were all baptized in the River Jordan. I mean, you talking about going out to meet him? You talk about going out and turning your back on tradition. You talk about going out and, 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 and putting it on the line and going out on a limb and starting to saw the back of it here because, I mean, this was totally unprecedented. It was totally unknown before that you go out there and preaching for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized, and as a result, something was going to happen that you didn't have to bring your bulls to the altar. You didn't have to bring your goats to the altar and all the rest of that. All of Judea and Jerusalem went out there because of this phenomenon that was taking place out there in the wilderness at the Jordan River. They went out to meet him. 
He was there preparing the way of the Lord. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea went out there to meet him. I mean, it was a phenomenon. People went out there in droves. Droves. It made an impact. Three years later in Luke chapter 19. It was the day which we call Palm Sunday. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Because he knew that the time had come for him to be offered up. The time had come for him to be offered up that he had, to that point he had fulfilled his mission in the earth. And therefore he was coming into Jerusalem, being led of the Lord because he was aware that his time and his mission on earth was about to face the most crucial moment. But yet he had declared the kingdom of heaven. And in the declaration of the kingdom of heaven, he had healed the sick. He had dealt with diseases. He had cast out devils. He had raised the dead. The people were throng and multitudes were there. He fed 4,000 men at one time. And if you just figure, uh, that's just the men. He, figured, he, he fed 5,000 men at another time. And that's just the men. They didn't count the women and the children. So it's probably at least double that amount of people with a few loaves and fish. I mean, the miracles were absolutely miraculous. If we see things like that today, we go, wow. What a crusade. Wow. Now remember that many of the people that he preached to had been to John first and had been baptized at the Jordan River. In fact, the disciples, John's disciples were a bit concerned because when Jesus began to come preaching and the people started following Jesus, they were concerned about that. And John the Baptist said, listen, he must increase and I must decrease. He understood his mission. He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm making a way open up for the bridegroom. But, but he who is the bridegroom, he's the one, I'm paraphrasing, he's the one who's going to increase. And so now three years, a little bit more later, here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem. I mean, they were going before him. They were putting their palm branches down, and they were going, doing great things, throwing down their coats and everything else. But as he drew near in verse 41 to the city, he saw the city, and he wept over. There's a place when you come in from Bethany, when you come in over the hill there and drop into the hill, the whole city of Jerusalem lies out there in front of you. You can see the whole city. And he was there, and he said, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they, have hit, they, they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the, to the ground. And they will, not, they, they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now these were the same people that had gone out to John. 
These were some of the same people who got out there and been baptized. These are some of the same people that had sat and listened to him on the Sermon on the Mount. These are some of the same people that had been there at the, sea, the seashore when he had to push off from the shoreline and get into the boat and talk to the multitudes there. And there were some of the same people that were here that, that were, had been fed with the loaves and the fishes. And now as he looked out over the city, he wept and he says, listen, he said, among other things, you, 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 your, your peace that could have been yours, you have rejected. And as a result, you did not know the time or the day of your visit. When our son was in Israel, he, in part of the tour that they went, he was in this place, and he said he had a strange experience there and at the tomb. As he looked out there over the city, he said suddenly there's just something welled up in him. He wept, and he said, I didn't understand why, Dad, but I just wept. He had another quite an awesome experience at the tomb. Everybody else went in and looked around and come back out. He couldn't. Finally, he, he said, I've got to go in there. I'm here. I've got to go in there. And when he went in there, he said, I have just one big goosebump. And I just started crying in there. I had to get out. He said, I've heard. His people that he was with said, what's the matter with you? He said, I've heard this stuff since I was a boy. And to see it, be actually there in the presence of it, it's just about more than I can take. But here was Jesus. And he said, you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't know the time of your visitation. Some of those same people a few days later were crying, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. But let's fast forward a little bit. Let's fast forward a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> and let's see what happened, because we know the story. We know how he went through death, burial, and resurrection. We know all that. We're familiar with that. We don't have to belabor those points. But let's look at a post, something that happened post-resurrection. After the resurrection, Paul is writing to the Corinthians regarding this, regarding the risen Christ. And he's writing to them, he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by the which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you be believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I will also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, it wasn't just any old way, it was according to the Scriptures that was prophesied for years before. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Caiaphas, and then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Paul was saying, listen... The validation of the resurrection is, is, is so, so great. He says even at one time there were 500 who had seen him after the resurrection, not, not accounting even his own disciples and his, and, his, and, his, and his family, his immediate family. I think there was a total of about 500 and I think it was 539 or 548 people that's documented that actually saw him after the resurrection. But then let's go over to, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to pull something out of here, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost to where I wanted to get to, to what really impacted me this week. 
I'm not there yet, but we're almost there. In Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick it up in verse, well, we can pick it up, pick it up clear back in verse 44, but to save a little bit of time, he opened the scripture and they, he opened their understanding at verse 45 that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said, thus it was written, necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And, and so on. Then he says in verse 49, he, he, he was telling his disciples then, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass that when he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now what he said here was, he said, listen... You need to go back to Jerusalem from Bethany. You need to go back to Jerusalem, a few miles back there to Jerusalem. And you need to wait there until I send the promise of the Father. He had instructed them in John 13, 14, 15, chapter 16, and then in chapter 17. He had instructed them that the Holy Spirit was going to come. He says, I'm going to, he he, uh, he is with you, but he's going to be in you. And he talked about that. And and he says, now, but you've got to go back to Jerusalem. You need to go back there and wait for the promise of the Father. He was speaking primarily to his disciples at this point. We're not told how many other people might have been there on the mountain of ascension when he ascended. But he said, you need to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to tie this all together in a little bit. And Acts chapter 1 is where they, 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 they went back there. And, and like I said, we don't know how many people were there when he gave them those instructions to go back. But we find that if we go to Acts chapter 1 and, and, and we'll go to verse... Uh, let me see, where are we here? Acts chapter 1, and we want to go to um, verse 16. We'll read verse 16 and, and uh, a couple of verses here. It says, well, let's do it in verse 15. Those days, Peter, they, as they were there gathering together, this, he stood up in the midst of the disciples, although altogether the number of the names were about 120. And he said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas and so on. But I want you to notice that here there were 120 of them together. And they were there waiting, and as they were there, beginning in their waiting period, the ten days till Pentecost, as they were there waiting, it suddenly dawned and said, wait a minute, we're supposed to have 12, 12 apostles, supposed to have 12 disciples, and they chose the one out there. There were, there were 120 there in that, in that place where they were waiting. They were there in an upper room at that particular time. They were there waiting, waiting for the, for, for the, the, for the, the promise of the Father to come. Now let's drop down to chapter 2 and verse 1. Interesting. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. It does not say they were in the upper room. It says they were in one place. Some people feel, some of the ones who study these things feel that they were in the outer court of the temple area. 
because they take a pretty large upper room for have 120 people there all the time, wouldn't it? And yet if you did some other study, which I didn't take time to bring out here this afternoon, but they were there where several of the disciples had dwelled, and it appears as though some had been living in this upper room, and so they were there part of the time, and part of the time they weren't. But he says they could have been in the upper room. I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, make a big deal of that because I'm just wanting to make a point here in a little bit. And suddenly in verse 2, there came a sound from heaven. There came a sound from heaven. You suppose it's anything like that last trump that's going to blow? There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house. Now, Scripture says house, but sometimes the word house is used for temple. Sometimes it's used for the house of the Lord. It's used for a house of this, house of that. And it says the whole house where they were sitting. I want you to note that they were sitting. They were just sitting there waiting. Sitting there waiting. They had put aside everything else. They had gone out to meet him. They were sitting there waiting. They had been there 10 days from the time of the ascension to the time of the, of the Feast of, of Pentecost. They were there for 10 days. They were sitting waiting, just waiting. Uh, it doesn't say what they were doing. Whether they, well, it says there they were praying. It didn't say they were praying. They said they were assembled devout, uh, in that in the, uh, uh, they were all with one accord in one place. I don't know whether they were praying, but they probably had to pray to get into one accord. How many know that it's not easy to get in one accord with 120 people? <laughs> Sometimes it's not really easy to get in the one accord with two people. <laughs> Sometimes I even have conflict within myself. I don't need anybody else. So there was 120 people there at least. There were at least that many there. And, and, and they were there sitting. They were just waiting. They were waiting. I don't think they were waiting passively. A couple of weeks ago we ministered on the eight levels of waiting from the scripture. I'm sure they were there. They were quiet. They were waiting. They were pressing in. They were not just sitting there passively saying, well, I wonder what is going to happen. Well, it's your nice day out here today. No, I think they were focused. They were waiting. Waiting on the Lord is not passive. Waiting on the Lord is spiritually aggressive, even though you may be emotionless while you're doing it. They were there waiting, sitting, waiting. Suddenly, without, a, without any kind of fanfare, without any kind of gradualness, suddenly there was a sound from heaven and a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this next part of this is what so struck me this week as we're going to build up to where we're, what the Lord just really pulled my chain with this week. And he says in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now listen to this. The King James, you don't really catch it in verse 6. But when, and I checked it, and this is what it actually, actually is. When this sound occurred, when this sound, as I did a little research on what this sound was, the word is used for the kind of a, a combination of a mighty roar. It could be like the roar of the seashore, as well as also just a, just a very loud roar that took place. And at the, simultaneously, it was accompanied by a, 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 like a, a gale force wind that came in there with it. 
It didn't just come like a little gentle breeze coming up in the afternoon like here. It was just nice and quiet. Also, boom, there it was. There was a great sound from heaven. And the result of that great sound from heaven, it was so significant and so loud and so pronounced, the whole city heard it. The whole city heard it. That's what drew them together. It says when they were there, the sound occurred. The multitudes came together and they were confused. Because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Now here's where I'm, I'm questioning whether or not they were actually in the upper room or whether they might have been outside in the court of the temple. Because how, if they were up in an upper room, how could they have been down here on the streets, a whole people, whole, whole multitude of people gathered around there, and they could hear them speaking up there in the upper room? I don't know. I'll leave that with you. I'm not trying to debate that theologically this afternoon because I'm going someplace else. And so he says, he says they heard them up there. They, 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 they heard them speaking. They were amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Look, I love all these to speak Galileans. And, and they, and how is it that we hear in our own language in which we were born? It talks about all these different languages that were there. And they, they were, in verse 13, it says that they were amazed and perplexed and saying, well, how, what could this mean? <coughs> now, something was taking place that some mocked and said, they're, they're, they're full of new wine. They must be able to see them. I don't know how many they could have seen up in the upper room, but they must be able to see them. Man, these guys, they're probably wobbling around there a little bit and a little bit woozy, you know, or something like that. I don't know. I, don't, I can only, something I read about, I can't speak from experience, you know. <laughs> Why are you laughing? You don't believe me. Verse, verse 14. Now listen to this. Listen, follow with me a little bit. I'm, I'm going to... Can I take a little liberty, perhaps? Peter, standing up. Remember, they've been sitting before. You, you know, when you ever been real woozy, it's not too easy to stand up. <laughs> now, why do you suppose Peter stood up? He wanted them to see that they'd not been drinking before 9 o'clock in the morning. Because, you see, it was, it was a custom that even though the, 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 the Jews enjoyed having their wine, they would never drink before 9 o'clock in the morning because at 9 o'clock in the morning was a time of first prayers. They would never drink before 9 o'clock in the morning. And so Peter stood up, and he stood up among the 11, the, the rest of the, the ones that were there. He stood up. I don't know if they could have observed that in the upper room. Possibly. But he stood up. Peter, standing up with her among the leaven, he raised his voice and said, men, and, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. Something was going on that they could observe. I mean, maybe they were laughing. Maybe the hilarity had broken out among them. Maybe they were shaking a bit. Who knows what was going on? But whatever it was, it looked like they were drunk. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. But Peter, he stood up. And I'm sure he stood up pretty nice and straight and tall. <laughs> These folks aren't drunk. Implying that I couldn't be standing up here nice and straight and tall if I was drunk. Are you with me? They might all stood up. They stood up, but he actually the word with is among or in the midst of. 
And so the 11 may have stood up to give him support, or he may have just stood up there right in the midst of the 11. But anyway, let's see what happens. He, he, he goes on and says, he says, this is that. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he, re he, re he rehearses for them what it was that the prophet Joel had, had, had talked about. Now, if you had asked Peter the night before, uh, Peter, do you have any idea what Joel meant over there in chapter 2? He said, I don't have the faintest idea. How could you possibly, if you read there what was in the, in, in, in the prophet Joel in the last, comes past in the last days, says the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your, your, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Maybe they were seeing visions. Maybe they were speaking prophetically. We don't know what was going on. Maybe they were just kind of, uh, you know, the people are looking on and said, man, these guys are babbling like drunk people. I don't know what was going on, but something was going on that they thought those people are drunk. They weren't just sitting there back there nice and stayed and quietly waiting on the Lord anymore. Something had happened when that mighty rushing wind came in and when that sound came in from heaven, when it came in and shook that place and when the whole area around there heard it and it came running together to see what had happened. He goes on and says, And my hand servants and maid servants, I'm going to pour out my spirit in those days and they prophesy and I'll show wonders in heaven and above and signs in the earth beneath. Signs in the earth beneath. You mean that what appeared to be drunkenness might have been a sign that was in the earth? Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now listen carefully. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. You know, you'll note that through... The, oh, the, the book of Acts, I think it's about eight times Jesus of Nazareth is used, that term. The reason for that is that Jesus was considered to be an illegitimate son. He was from the city of Nazareth, which was considered to be one of the least among the least of the cities and towns of Israel. And so whenever this, whenever this term is used, they're actually giving honor and credibility to something that was a generally, uh, generally kind of disdained as far as what the society would call it. So they, he said, listen, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, they man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders uh, and signs which God did, did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, him being delivered by their determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hand and have crucified and have put him to death whom God raised up having, having loosed the pains of death because it is not possible he should be held by it. He goes on here and talks about, uh, about David and how when David was prophesying there, how it wasn't possibly himself because he was still in the, in the grave and his, 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 uh, uh, his tomb is there with them. But we, we're going uh, to, we'll, we'll drop down to, to uh, let's drop down to verse, uh, where are we here? We want to drop down to, we read verse 22, we read that part. Let's drop down to verse 32. As he's talking about, about with, with, with David, he says, This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. They were seeing something and they were hearing something. For David did not ascend into heaven as it says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, quoting from Psalm 110. But now listen very carefully. Verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Whom you 
crucified. Now remember here, the people that were gathered there were from all around Judea and Jerusalem. Many of the same people who had gone out to John at the River Jordan and been baptized. They were there at the beginning of the move of God in that hour. They were there. They had paid a price. They had stepped out of their traditions. They had stepped out of their religious fervors. They had stepped out of that, and they had dared to go down to the River Jordan to be baptized. They were baptized down there, calling on the name of the Lord, preparing the way of the Lord. They were out there in that place, and they had, they had dared to go out there and become a spectacle out there and, and, and dare to show to themselves and the priests and the Pharisees because you notice the Pharisees used to come out there and stand on the riverbank, and many of them would be, they were there just to criticize, but they had gone out there, and they were baptized, and some of those same people were there. They had every opportunity to be there. They could have been there in that upper room that day. They could have been there receiving the promise of the, of the Spirit that day, but they were perhaps in the very same crowd that was calling out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The ones that said his blood be on us, on our children, as Jesus prophesied there in the book of Luke that we read there, where he said he wept over the city and he said that you would have had peace, but now there's not going to have peace, but there's going to be embankments against you and your children and children's children are not going to know the way of peace and they still don't know it over there. But the very same people, the very same people who had been there at the beginning of a new and fresh dispensation, who had gone out there to be baptized, those very same people had fallen asleep. And they did not recognize, in spite of the miracles, they did not recognize in spite of the glory that was there, in spite of seeing the dead raised, the multitudes fed, Walking, hearing the stories of walking on the water, of hearing, seeing the, uh, the healings and the deliverances and all those things took place in public in the, in the synagogues, in the, in the courts of the temple, out in the marketplace. They didn't go out to meet him. They didn't go out to meet him. And some of those very people that had paid a price in the beginning... They missed out on the great promise of the Father coming when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And he said, What is this? What is this? Oh, dear ones, we've all paid a price. We've all known the presence and the glory of the Lord in the past. We've paid a price, sometimes been made a laughing stock. Look like fools for the things that we've embraced, the things that we stepped out of, the things where we drew lines with some of the things that we need to draw lines in. But could it be that there may be some slumbering and sleeping going on? Could it be that like, that, like these multitudes who only heard what had happened after the fact and they came running together and said, what is this? And Peter stood up and he said, this same Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified, great controversy. Did the Jews crucify Jesus? Well, according to this scripture, they did. According to this scripture, they did. You know the controversy going on about the Passion of, Christ, of the Christ movie. And it's anti-Semitic and all the rest of it. Did the, did the Jews crucify? Well, we all crucified. Our sin crucified him. But here he said, you did it. You did it. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not coming against, the, against Israel, coming against the Jews. I'm just simply saying what the Scripture says. My sin put him there, just like your sin put him there. But my hands didn't put him there. My sin did. And so here they were, 
They had gone out there to the river. They had been baptized. They had gone out to John. They had gone out. They had, they had dared to step out of their traditions. They had gone out there. They started well three years prior to this. They had done all right, but they got caught up in what was going on and caught up with the, the, the various other things. They only had their eyes for certain things. They did not hear the visitation. They did not see the visitation of their God. It could have been. It could have been. Oh, it causes a trembling in my spirit to consider that as we're listening and we're hearing the sound of abundance of rain when, jo- when, when Isaiah uh, was out there and, and he, he told Lahab it's going to rain you better go have yourself a party get down to, the, down to your place because it's going to rain and, and when he was out there he, 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 he got there to, he was praying he sent his servant I said what do you see and after going out there a couple times he says I hear the I, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand and Elijah said I hear the sound of the abundance of had started raining yet. I hear the sound of his coming. I hear the beginning, the beginning whispers, the beginning reverberations of a voice that's coming that says, "Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go out to meet him. Go out to meet him. Will you dare to do that?" Or will you settle with status quo? Or can you imagine waking up one morning and realizing, oh, this same Jesus whom you crucified has not been ascended up and raised up and has not come in the Holy Spirit. Can, can we imagine what it would be like one morning when we realize, when we hear people talking about what's going on and, and things are happening and the Spirit is moving and, we, oh, well, I think I'll just kind of sit back a little bit. I'm not sure if that's for me. I mean, I, I might be too old or I've been young, whatever. I've got too many other things to do. It's not become a priority, but suddenly when there's a change takes place. No wonder, he said, there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing. I can't imagine what it would be like saying, oh God, it could have been. I could have been in that upper room. I could have been with those 120. I could have been there when the Spirit fell. I, I, I could have been there, Lord. I, I went out to the Jordan. I went out there. I got baptized. I, I partook of the, 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 the feeding of the 5,000. I saw the miracles. In fact, you touched my son. You touched my daughter. But God, it could have been. Go out to meet him. Go out of your lethargy. Come out of our complacency. Come out of our religious facades. Come out of our spiritual complacency. Come out of a backside of the desert back here. Get on your knees and let's go forward because we need to go out to meet him. The time is here. The time is here. The time is here that we need to go out to meet him. That we need to go beyond where we've been. Get out of our comfort zones. And so he goes on and he says, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Think there was some weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? And foreshadow what's to come at the end of this age? They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brethren, what shall we do? Can you imagine having missed the boat? Or we had the opportunity. We missed it. What shall we do? 
Oh, the grace and the mercy of God when Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What mercy. What compassion. For the promises to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Oh, the mercy and the grace of God there in spite of being absolutely struck with fear and awe. Man, brethren, what shall we do? Repent. Perhaps one of the greatest gifts that God has made available to you and me is the the ability to repent and to be cleansed of the past and to be open and be ready and come and be able to stand before him with freshness and cleansed and be, as as we sometimes say, justified, just as if I had never sinned, can stand before him. We need to pray that God deliver us from our complacency. We're going to do that in a couple of moments. It could have been. I can just hear him saying, it could have been. I can hear the cords struck in their heart as they were cutting their heart. Oh, my goodness. I missed it. It could have been. I could have been there. I could have been part of it. Malachi puts it this way in Psalm, in, in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly he'll come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom ye delight in. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That was written a long time ago. I've written a long time ago, about 2,400 years ago. But you know what? It's 2,400 years closer than it was when he wrote it. And I hear it. I hear it coming. I hear it coming out of the sounds of heaven as you get in that quiet place, as we get together for prayer. And as we were as we were together a few nights ago, and just that quietness of prayer, you hear it coming. You hear it coming. There's a sound coming out of heaven. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go out to meet him. Trim your lamps. Get to make sure there's all with you. Go out to meet him. Come out to meet him. He's coming. Song of Solomon puts it this way in 2, 10 to 13. He says, My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear in the earth, and the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. It's springtime, in other words. Springtime, the time of loves, is here. It's upon us. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines of the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Let's go out to meet him. Let's go out to meet him. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, You've stirred our hearts today. You've stirred our hearts today. And Lord, we hear the sound. We hear the sound of your coming. It's a bit faint still, perhaps for most of us. It's a bit faint. But Lord, we hear the sound of your coming. And Lord, we would prepare ourselves. And Father, we would ask you that even right now, that the complacency that's been in our hearts... Lord, that, you would, that we would be forgiven. We repent of it, Lord. We, re- we repent of the complacency. 
We repent of the satisfaction. We, pers- we, we repent, Lord, of not being hungry, not being desperate, as we sang about earlier this afternoon. We repent, Lord, of, of not counting you more necessary than our daily food. Lord, we repent, Lord, of not having our priorities arranged in such a way that you have, that you have the preeminence in those priorities. We repent, Lord. Because we do not want to be among those in which there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and we have to consider it could have been. I had that opportunity. I heard that message. I heard that word. I heard that challenge. I heard that challenge to come out of our our complacency, to come out of the places where we've been and go out to meet you. Lord, I heard that. Lord, I repent. Lord, cleanse me, Lord. Yes, Lord. Your word tells us that the seeing eye and the hearing ear, you've made the both of them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> dig out our ears, Lord. Holy Spirit, dig out our ears. Take the scales from our eyes. Anoint our eyes with eye salve that we might see. And give us a heart that's so filled with passion to know you that we will not, we will not do anything other than to be watchful and waiting because we recognize that we are in the weekend of this age. We're in the time, Lord, where you said that we're to be, that we're to be occupying until you come. We're at a time, Lord, well, when you said that we're to be watchful. We're to be watchful. Lord, help us to watch. We shake ourselves out of the slumber and the sleep that we've been in, Lord. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would move upon us, Lord. That you'd draw us, Lord. That you'd quicken our heart, Lord. That you'd stir us up, Lord. That you'd prick our hearts. That you'd cut our hearts, Lord. Because we're hungry. We're desperate. Yes, we are. God, we look at the needs in ourselves. We look at the needs in our own midst. We look at the needs in our families. We look at the needs in the society around us and we say, Oh, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. And we know, Lord, that we cannot in some way through our own performance get ourselves ready. But we throw ourselves on your mercy and your grace for your cleansing and for your establishing. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. We renounce complacency. We renounce lethargy. We renounce a spirit of slumber and sleep. We renounce religiosity. We renounce being being bound by the, the traditions of our fathers even when it is contrary to what you have for us. We renounce everything that is contrary to coming out to meet you. Lord, our heart is today to go out to meet you. And Father, I would ask that as you look upon our hearts today, our hearts that are stirred and our hearts that are bowed before you, that you grant the cry of our hearts. That you grant the cry of our hearts, Lord. Because we truly desire to go out to meet you. Whatever that means. Lord, I don't know what all that means. None of us know what all that means. But Lord, whatever it means, we want it. We want it, Lord. We want more of you than we've ever had before. We want more anointing than we've ever had before. We want more understanding than we've ever had before. We want to know more of your presence than we've ever had before. 
We want to see more of your glory than we've ever seen before. We want to understand more of your word than we've ever understood before. Do it, Father. Not for our great name's sake, but for your great name's sake, Lord. And we thank you for it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.